All right, uh, tonight is going to be a little bit different. Obviously, uh, we're going to try and cover the Psalms, but remember what this is, right? This is Old Testament survey. So this is not us walking through each one of the Psalms and their meaning. This is, hear this, this is for people who are already faithfully reading their Bible continuously. And I hope that you could say that's who you are, is somebody who reads the Bible faithfully and continuously. This is a tremendous tool to help you read your Bible, to get context, to understand context, be thinking through context as you read these things, and to help encourage your Bible study so that uh, you don't just read to read and check off on some uh, Bible reading list, but you are able to meditate and dissect the Word in such a way that you can pass that on to others, right? That you can make disciples and teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. You know that is not just for pastors, right? That the Lord gave the Great Commission to everyone, right? That we are all uh, to teach those uh, people all that the Lord has commanded us through His Word. So, today we're studying the Psalms. Um, we know the Psalms often is described as a, as a prayer book or the hymnal of the Bible, right? Um, and, and Christians through the ages have testified to the power and the solace of the Psalms to speak to God in times of great sadness and in times of great joy. Many of us, I'm sure, when we've walked through difficult times or times of celebration, have found ourselves um, appealing with the psalmist and, uh, and witnessing to the truths of the Psalms. The question for us today is, well, how do the Psalms speak to us as Christians? Uh, the book of Psalms is one way God has given us uh, to, to talk to him in a way that honors him while never minimizing the trials we know. In fact, if you're here today and you struggle with prayer, just what to pray, how to pray, when to pray, and you come to my office and say, I'm struggling with this, I'll have an assignment for you, and that is take a psalm. Pray it. Pray through it. It's always an encouraging thing, and it's very helpful um, as well. Uh, so, the book of Psalms, uh, Calvin called this book this way. He said, the book of Psalms is an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Though there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities. In short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. So, he's given us his own words to use as our swords. In good times, nothing better expresses praise to God than the use of the Psalms. In bad times, nothing can better remind us that God knows and cares about our sorrows and troubles. In fact, we know that Jesus, while he was on the cross, at least quoted, turned to two Psalms. Psalm 22 and Psalm 31. <clears throat> so here's how we're going to do it. We're going to study the Psalms by posing six questions. Number one, what are the Psalms? <clears throat> and I'm going to go through the rest of the five really quickly so you don't write them down all at once. Two, who wrote the Psalms and when? Three, how are the Psalms structured? Four, what are the different kinds of Psalms? Five, how do the Psalms point to Jesus? Six, how do we read the Psalms as Christians? All right, we'll start with number one. What are the Psalms? Who tried to write those down? I saw y'all. Right. They're coming. What are the Psalms? <clears throat> the Psalms, the uh, book of Psalms, it's a collection of 150 musical poems and prayers with 
different authors, and they're characterized by many different literary forms. Okay, Every one of the Psalms was written in language. Hebrew. 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 Yeah, that's what we're looking for. Um, so, uh, not that what you said was wrong. It's just, you know. Uh, so, some unfamiliar words appear in the Psalms often, such as the word. What's the word you often see in the Psalm that's in italics or that's in the very end of each Psalm? That, that's right. <clears throat> what does that mean? Like, amen. <clears throat> well, it, it would probably more than anything. This is good. My voice is just. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, <laughs> More than anything, they're probably notes um, or some sort of, for musical or worship direction, right? Some sort of pacing or, I don't know, Justin's a musician, but he would know. It means break it down. Something, yeah, break it down, right? Uh, so many of them have inscriptions uh, in the Psalms themselves that we can actually treat as reliable. doesn't mean that they're inerrant and fallible, but they're very, very reliable, those uh, inscriptions at the beginning of each psalm. Uh, the traditional Hebrew title for the book of Psalms comes from a word that means songs of praise, tehillim. Uh, that's the Hebrew title, meaning songs, songs of praise. The title psalms uh, comes from, uh, really, Latin Vulgate, taken from the word solo, or to pluck, uh, or used word used in context of stringed instruments. So, uh, many of the songs were composed for, or selected, or sung on special occasions. At least five of the psalms, Psalm 2, 21, 72, 101, and 110, were created for the coronation of the king. Uh, and then some of the psalms appear to have been connected with historical events. Fourteen psalms are linked to historical episodes in the life of David. Those, those um, inscriptions kind of help us see that. Uh, but, but many of them uh, are connected with historical events. Again, I know that you've got a lot of this. We're really kind of walking through the manuscript, the notes you have. But again, this is for your Bible reading. <clears throat> the Psalms are entirely poetry, which means that the language is condensed and conveys the meaning through image and structure. Uh, we see this all the time in English poetry and English song as well. It tends to work through sound, rhythm, and rhyme. You have that example, right? Mary had a little lamb. Her fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. But Hebrew poetry is a little bit different. Hebrew poetry often uses this thing called parallelism. Parallelism. Um, did you have them write that entire word, Justin? Nope, just parallel. Okay. P-A-R-A-L-L-E-L, in case you're wondering. Uh, to either reinforce, contrast, or develop or expand an idea. So you have examples, uh, an example of reinforcement would be Psalm 103.10. The first line is, he has not dealt with us according to our sins. Let's reinforce that. Nor punished us according to our iniquities. Or there's an example of contrast used in Psalm 63.8. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. Right. So you think that that's kind of a weird picture. How do those things really work together? At first, the verse kind of pictures us trying to express our desire to follow God, to follow after him, but then it turns the idea around and reminds us the exact opposite. He's actually the one that upholds us, carries us. Um, so God has arranged the verses of the Psalms very deliberately, and he's used rhetorical devices that makes them accessible to all kinds of people in all kinds of languages. Derek Kidner, in uh, his commentary on Psalms, wrote this. He said, 
The poetry of the Psalms has a broad simplicity of rhythm and imagery, which survives transplanting into almost any soil. Above all, the fact that its parallelisms are those of sense rather than of sound allows it to reproduce its chief effects with very little loss of either force or beauty. It is well fitted by God's providence to invite all the earth to sing the glory of his name. All right, so if I wanted to give a pop quiz next week and the first question was, what are the Psalms? I would maybe expect uh, you know, a couple <coughs> tidbits of information from what was given to you because that's question number one. What are the Psalms? Clear? Any questions? You look so excited. Number two, who wrote the Psalms and when? Who wrote the Psalms and when? A whole bunch of different people wrote a whole bunch of different songs over a whole long period of time. Um, in fact, we know Psalm 90 in the 14th century BC was written by guess? Moses. Absolutely. Then there's a whole lot of collective thought that believes Psalm 119 and a few other psalms after the exile, about a thousand years after Moses, was written by Ezra. Ezra. So Moses wrote, wrote Psalm 90, and many believe, I'm pretty sure it's pretty clear, that Ezra wrote Psalm 119. <clears throat> In addition um, to Moses and possibly Ezra, we don't know for sure, authors include... The sons of Korah, K-O-R-A-H. Don't spell your granddaughter's name there, Becky. Uh, those there are temple worship leaders. They wrote the Psalms you have there, 42 through 49, 84 and 85, and 87 and 88. Asaph's another guy who wrote at least 12 Psalms, including Psalm 50. He's most famous, I think, is Psalm 73. Uh, wrote 73 through 83. David's son, Solomon, wrote Psalm 72. And then the big kahuna himself, David, wrote 73 psalms, according to the superscriptions, of course. They often give us the psalm of David. The, the Psalter starts with a whole bunch of David psalms and then closes with a similar grouping of David psalms. You have those there as well. Um, we don't know who compiled all this, who decided to come up with these five books and use them as the Psalter. We would guess that Ezra did uh, for their present use form, for, for use in rebuilding the temple, as we see, remember, we talked about this often. We go through the historical narrative that ends really in Nehemiah, but Esther's kind of a tag-along story there. All of this takes place between that period of time. So likely at the rebuilding of the temple with Ezra and Nehemiah, what we saw is somebody like Ezra compiling these psalms and putting them uh, together. All right, that's number two. Who wrote the psalms and when? Do you have enough information to, to pass that pop quiz next week? One person shaking their head yes. The rest of you are saying, I'm not coming if you put a cop quiz out there. That's okay. Um, I still will. All right, number three. How are the Psalms structured? How are the Psalms structured? Psalms are divided into five books. Each book concludes with a doxology, right? Which a whole lot of passages of Scripture actually do. Doxology is just a special song of praise to God. That kind of concludes things. Uh, book five actually ends with five doxology, and it's really beautiful. If you're ever a fan of classical music and you know how the, the end of the, the piece kind of is the big fireworks display at the end, right? It's the exact same way with the Psalms. 145 to 150, you read, and it's just deeper praise and deeper praise and deeper praise. Um, and it just reminds me of, of something like that. So um, 
Book 1 includes Psalms 1 through 41. 1 through 41 is book 1 of the Psalms. Bless you, Miss Faith. This section probably was assembled during David's lifetime or maybe after. Uh, and the first two Psalms are really worth our attention. In fact, you ready? Let's look at Psalm 1. Just dying to get to the Word tonight. I know it. All right. Psalm 1 presents us with two types of people, a righteous man and a wicked man. Let's look at the righteous man. Someone read the first three verses of Psalm 1. I had to memorize this for a class, and I maybe have it, but I don't want to risk it. So somebody read that for me. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. All right, good. Uh, so, the tree imagery would remind us immediately of what? Garden. Right? Or, or possibly when we get to the book of Ezekiel, look at the eschatological temple that we'll see in Ezekiel 47. Uh, but we have to ask, all right, who is this model of righteous living, right? Who delights in God's law? Who meditates on it day and night? Was it any of the Israelites? Could any of us walk up in here on Wednesday night, hear that read, and say, that's me. Know it. <coughs> Finally, a psalm about me. I'm the righteous man. Hope not. All right, but now we go to Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, which follows exactly on the heels of Psalm 1, um, is it accidentally placed? Well, let's look at it. Psalm 2, in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Against the Lord and against his anointed saying. So the kings of the nation, they're here. They're taking their stand against the Lord and his anointed one. And that anointed one is Jesus. But that phrase anointed one means Messiah. Good. Okay. Then we have verse 5 where he rebukes them. That he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. In verse 6, he's installed as king. Yet I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. In verses 7 and 8, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations of your, for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So we've got this grand messianic figure really pictured in the first two psalms. This one's going to be king, messiah, and son who's going to rule over the earth at the beginning of the Psalter. And then there's this eschatological or end times expectation of the Messiah's rule over the whole earth in Psalm 2. And then immediately after this, we get 30 Psalms by David that call our attention to David. So Stephen Dempster therefore writes, it's clearly David who's emerging as the focus of the Bible. Somehow the hopes of the Israelite nation are placed on his shoulders. Now you would read that and think, that's wrong, right? Unless you understood that David was... Not just chosen. What's that Old Testament word we talk about? That type foreshadows, prefigures, and is arguably the greatest type of Christ in the Old Testament, right? Certainly we know that that's about Jesus, and yet even in the immediate context, we have David painted in this light, which is going to be important for us to remember as we go through this new David we've encountered since 2 Samuel 11. I don't know who, that, I don't know who this guy is, but uh, he's a new David. All right, book number two. Includes Psalms 42 through 72. Uh, these Psalms, uh, they often address uh, distress and difficulty experienced by 
uh, individual people. They're very solemn. But speaking generally, they're, they're psalms that provide a whole lot of comfort to God's people when they're going through distress uh, and difficulty as well. Um, book number three includes Psalms 73 and 89. And by the way, just a shameless plug, we, we preached what, guys? Like 50 psalms, I think, um, in, on Sunday nights back when that was a thing. Uh, and so there's quite a bit of these. If you're ever having an issue understanding that we'd encourage you to go back in our archive sermons and uh, and, and look through some of those psalms as well. So 42, uh, sorry, 73 through 89 is book three. Um, many of these were post-exilic psalms written after the exile to Babylon. Uh, and again, probably written as a source of comfort and solace in time of a national catastrophe. So they carry with it some of those themes. But these psalms really help us understand particularly the apparent triumph of evil men how in the world are evil men able to prosper in this world? And how fleeting that is in light of God's grander, greater purposes in his kingdom building. Book four includes Psalms 90 through 106. Um, this is really focused in on the importance and centrality of worship, even in the wake of the exile. And in general, this section it stresses divine kingship and it contrasts that with human king, kingdoms as well. That's book 4, Psalm 90 through 106. And then the last book, book 5, is the largest, 107 to 150. 107 to 150. And its main theme, again, is the praise to God. Um, I took my daughter and son, what was it, two years ago, uh, to a jumbo shrimp game on a Friday night, which means... Fireworks, right? Uh, and I, that was the whole pool to get Adeline Ruth to sit through a baseball game was that there's fireworks coming at the end. Emmett took no convincing. Um, and so we get to the fireworks the entire time, and we're sitting out there in the bleachers, and she screams her head off the entire time. Like, they're terrifying her. And I don't know if you've ever been to a fireworks show, and you're in the outfield. There's, like, legit no place for you to go to avoid the fireworks. So I just sat there and held her ears together and thought, I paid money to do this. Um, so, uh, and then we got to the car and I said, what was your favorite part? And Emmett said, I loved when he hit the dinger, which is a phrase for home run. And the guy hit a home run. And Addie said, my favorite part was nothing. And I thought, well, that's <laughs> fantastic. Um, I say that because particularly at that fireworks show, they got great fireworks at the Jumbo Shrimp game, and the finales are insane, right? There's all this just continual blasting in it. My favorite thing about fireworks is thinking, it's done, it's over. That's got to be the finale. And then all of a sudden you're like, what is happening? This is insane. It's like a heavy metal concert. Well, this is exactly what we see at the end of the Psalms. Maybe not a heavy metal concert, uh, but you get the principle. Uh, we see continuous praise and honor given to God. They're just laying it on over and over again. You cannot read those last five Psalms without getting this sort of a crescendo or, or climax of uh, tremendous praise to God. We would compare those um, exactly that way, this grand finale that features the biggest and, and brightest praises to the Lord. So the theme of this section is summed up well by Psalm 156. Not 156, 156. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, right? Who's thinking of the song right there? Right? Justin? The same that no, I'm kidding. Uh, all right, that's number three. How are the Psalms divided? I, I'm not going to ask you to list the books and, and that thing, but just know at least a little bit how they're divided. Uh, what are the different kinds of Psalms? That's question number four. Remember, we got six questions. We're on number four. That's okay. 
What are the different kinds of songs? There are so many views on this, but generally speaking, uh, we can sort the, the psalms into 11 different kinds. And I know that's a weird number. I really try to make it 12 or 10, but 11 is where we're going to go. This is Final Tap. So, Psalm 1, Psalms of Lament. Number 2, Psalms of Thanksgiving. Psalms of Praise. Enthronement Psalms. Royal Psalms. Psalms of Zion. Psalms of Wisdom, like Psalm 1. Psalms of Trust. Liturgies. Torah Psalms, which would be Psalm 119, and imprecatory Psalms, which is everybody's favorite. Um, I'm going to give you just an example of three that kind of make up the majority of the Psalms, and imprecatory is not one of those, so sorry if you came for that. Um, Number one, let's look at Psalms of Lament. Psalms of Lament. And I want you to notice this. This is something you really can read and use in your your Bible study that would be very helpful. I'll try and go slow here because there's a lot to fill in. Uh, Look at Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is what we would qualify as a psalm of lament. First thing that happens is the psalmist addresses God, right? That's in the very first word of the the psalm, Lord. So we've got an address. The psalmist addresses God. Next, the psalm lays out his complaint to God. Psalm lays out his complaint to God. In this particular text, the complaint is how they have increased who trouble me. There is no help for him in God. That's the complaint. But a psalm of laments, not just a pity party, doesn't end that way. The psalmist then turns and confesses in the midst of his complaint his trust in the Lord. His trust in God. He does that in this text through verses 3 through 6. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me. Another psalm. I will not be afraid. Not only does he trust in God. He cries out for God to deliver him from his troubles. That's seen in verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. So we have the psalm addressing God, his complaint to God, his trust in God, and his call for God to deliver him from his troubles. And that's usually followed by an assurance of God's merciful and faithful character. That's seen in verse 8a. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Finally, there's a concluding prayer, generally of praise, but sometimes a repetition of the need for deliverance. Here it's found in 8b, your blessing is upon your people. Everybody get those? We need me to go over them again? Y'all are doing such a great job paying attention. All right, listen, the, the, it's important to note that the Psalms of the Lent don't just pretend like everything's going to go really well for those people who trust in the Lord. That's not at all what they do. Rather... They encourage us to take our cares to the Lord, 1 Peter 5, right? To trust him to deliver us in the midst of our cares. Uh, so that's Psalms of Lament. Second, Psalms of Thanksgiving. Turn to Psalm 30. I'll probably do this in a similar way. We'll all read most of it so you guys can write it down. Psalm 30. Psalms of Thanksgiving are expressions of gratitude to God for that which he has done, all that he has accomplished. Just like the Psalms of Lament, they typically follow a standard format. Verse 1, he invokes God. That's I-N-vokes God. Starts in verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. Verses 2 and 3, the psalmist then lays out his motive for giving thanks. Justin gave you a break there. Um, uh, Verses 4 through 10. He invokes the Lord, lays out his motive for giving thanks, and then the psalmist addresses God, often remembering his original plea. 
See that verse 8 where he says, I cried out to you, O Lord. Then in verses 11 and 12 of the Psalm of Thanksgiving, he recounts God's response. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. In verse 12b, finally the psalm ends by giving God. What kind of psalm is this? Giving God thanks. That's right, Miss Don, catching on. There we go. Oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So in a psalm of thanksgiving, we usually have that format. Invoking the Lord, laying out my motive for why I'm giving thanks, then I'm addressing the Lord himself, often bringing back to that original plea, then I am recounting what God's response is, and then I'm in the end, I'm giving thanks. Again, these are so incredibly helpful. Because listen, I know that we, we just talked about how this is for our Bible reading, but all Bible reading, remember, is practical application with it. So you're thinking, well, this is how I read a psalm of lament. This is how I read a psalm of thanksgiving. Well, this is how you walk through lament as a Christian, right? This is how you walk through thanksgiving as a Christian. These are formats for you to put to practice continually. So see that. Finally, we've got psalms of praise. Psalms of praise... Psalms of praise are similar to Thanksgiving psalms, but they're distinguished because they lack a reference to the worship's earlier problems or God's recent intervention. There's nothing of that there. Psalms of praise, they're just centered on praise for God, uh, for God's sake, because of who God is. But they also have a structure which you, we can remember as SRR, not SSR or USSR, but SRR. 148, Psalm 148 is an example of that. We talked about the last book of the Psalter being really the theme of praise. I'm going to read that to you. First, there is the summons to praise. We see this in 1 through 4. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. You just Are you hearing fireworks go off? Right? Uh, praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you stars of light. Praise him, you heavens of heavens and you waters above the heavens. And also 7 and, and 12. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures, all the depths. Fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars. Beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth. Both young men and maidens, old men and Children, there is a whole lot of summons there to praise, amen? All right, and then finally next, there's a, there's a reason for that praise. The reasons given for that praise, that's found in verse 5 and 6. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? For he commanded and they were created. And he also established them forever and ever. He made a decree which shall not pass away. And then 13 and 14a, let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? His name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven. And he has exalted the horn of his people. The praise of all his saints, of the children of Israel, a people near to him. And then finally, there's a recapitulation of praise. You're welcome. welcome. Word of the day. Recapitulation. R-E-C-A-P-I-T-U-L-A-T-I-O-N. Is that six syllables? Six syllable words. Can add that. Now you can impress nobody. Um, so there's a recapitulation of praise, and sometimes these are very brief. At the end, there's that last phrase again: "Praise the Lord." Recapitulation <coughs> of that phrase. Okay. All right. We got four questions down. All right. Any questions so far? 
Would you give us a definition for recapitulation? Recapitulation is a re-picture of something that's happened previously, right? In the same light. That's supposed to bring back old memories of those things in a, in a new light, right? Oh. Is that your question? Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, what's an enthronement song? An enthronement song would, would often kind of look more like a royal psalm, except it's more about the transition of putting someone there. So royal psalms are more directed to the king. The, the enthronement is more the process by which raised raised up to kingship. So enthronement. Make sense? All right. Number five. How do the Psalms point us to Jesus? All right, these last two are, spoiler alert, going to be the longer ones, okay? Um, How do the Psalms point us to Jesus? Once we see this, we can hopefully answer the next question, which is, how are we to read the Psalms as Christians? That's not as simple as you might think. Obviously, we read them because it's in the Bible, it's God's Word, it's infallible, it's inerrant, we know that. Um, But let's think about this, because Psalm 18 would read this way. Psalm 18 tells us the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. Think that's something you can read and pray in your quiet time? Probably not. Uh, Graham Goldsworthy puts our dilemma well. He says this, Does the Christian simply identify with the psalmist in praise of God or in cry for help? If we identify with the psalmist, to what extent and on what grounds? To ask the latter question is to inquire of the biblical theological link between the psalm and the Christian believer. Well, we can only find answers to these questions by looking at the single best commentary available on the Old Testament. Anyone want to guess what that is? Close. The New Testament. Right, there you go. Uh, The New Testament is the best commentary available on the Old Testament. Uh, What did Jesus and the New Testament authors... Tell us about the Psalms. Quite simply, they all said the Psalms were fulfilled in Jesus. Do you have that text there in Luke 24, verse 44? In your notes, do you have it? Yes. Somebody read that for me. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I'm still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All right. Anybody want to set the context for what that is? What is Luke 24? Jesus on the road to Emmaus, right? What happens on the road to Emmaus? Who does he encounter? Paul. That's Damascus. Emmaus. There's another road, though. Um, Two men, right? And what are these two men talking about? They were talking about Jesus. Man, they killed Jesus. Did you hear about this? How could they do that? Like, what in the world? And then Jesus, not knowing it's Jesus, of course... Reveals himself and says, you, you fools. Uh, did you not know the Old Testament? Uh, it, it tells you that this happened. And most of all, it's all about me. And he includes in that Old Testament the prophets, Law of Moses, and the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. So how did he fulfill what he was written about? What was written about him, excuse me, in the Psalms? Most of this is going to be taken from a book uh, called The Ancient Love Song, Finding Christ in the Old Testament, by a guy named Charles Drew. Uh, he titles his chapter on the Psalms, Songs of the Messiah. He divides the Songs of the Messiah into two types of songs. Uh, songs about the Messiah, and songs 
by the Messiah. And I think that division in particular really helps us answer the question. See how Jesus fulfills the Psalms as well as how to read them as Christians. So let's look at what he says there. Psalms about the Messiah. Get ready to turn to the scripture references. The Psalms about the Messiah are not too hard to recognize, right? Because Psalm after Psalm focuses our attention to this great and this glorious King of Israel. And for paying attention from earlier, we know it's not always King David. So great and glorious is this King, in fact, that the Psalms have to be prophetic. Somebody read Psalm 21, verses 3 and 4 for me. For you meet with him with the blessings of goodness and set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. Mm, all right. Now, what about Psalm 45, verses 1 through 2, 6 and 17, which 617 is actually my birthday, in case you didn't know. Um, coming up, whatever. Give me a gift. Don't. I don't care. Uh, Psalm 45, verses 1 through 2, 6 and 17. If you want to remember that, because it is my birthday, then feel free to do that. To the chief musician, set to the lilies, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured out, uh, poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. In verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Verse 17, I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. All right, then Psalm 72, 8, I got this one. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And in verse 11, yes, all kings shall fall down before him and all nations shall serve him for he will deliver the needy when he cries the poor also in him who has no helper. In verse 17, his name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All the nations shall call him blessed. What in the world do we do with those psalms well again we want to ask what is it the new testament says about psalms like these we've already looked at psalm 2 right it tells us about this coming messiah who's going to be installed as king and who's going to dash his enemies like pieces of pottery remember what peter says to the jews in acts 4 john says they said that this that very text in psalm 2 is about jesus in fact so does the author of hebrews in hebrews 1 Psalm 110 also proclaims this Messiah as well. Somebody, if you have it, read Psalm 110, 1 and 2 for me. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. All right, so, so Jesus actually quotes this psalm at least twice. We know Peter quotes this psalm in Acts chapter 2 when he lays the absolute thunder down on Pentecost. And, and finally, the author of Hebrews, again, does the same in Hebrews 1, 13, 4, 5, and 7, everywhere. So as Drew says, the language here is suggestive of more than just the court poet celebrating his local monarch, right? This is more than that. This is about the Messiah. Then we look at Psalms by the Messiah. Psalms by the Messiah. The New Testament also displays the use of these psalms in another very interesting way. The very words of Jesus that he speaks, they are uh, linked together with the words and experiences of David in an interesting fashion. There's a, there's a sense in which 
where we read the Psalms as if they were by the Messiah. And, and when we do that, we're even further drawn into more than the kingly and enthronement Psalms, but the Psalms which represent the, this broad range of human experience and emotion. How do we see that? All over the place. First, Jesus clears the temple, temple in John 2. And why does he do it? Because he's quoting from Psalm 69.9. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So we know Jesus also goes to his death. And the reason he goes to his death, at least given in John 15, because quoting from Psalm 35.19 and Psalm 69.4, they hated me without a cause. Describing his own heart's turmoil in John chapter 12, Jesus quotes David in Psalm chapter 6. Anybody have Psalm 6? Not I'll turn there. My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me, O Savior, for your mercy's sake. Absolutely. As we've already said, a number of Jesus' last words were taken from the Psalms themselves. Psalm 22, which I believe he happens to be drawing attention to. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's from Psalm 22. I thirst is from Psalm 69. Into your hand I commit my spirit is Psalm 31. But not just in Jesus' suffering, but also his vindication in his resurrection. Peter points to Psalm 16 when explaining the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Acts 2, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Paul seems to describe the Gentiles, the nations, this is the very work of the exalted Christ. Even Psalm 22, the end, which Jesus quotes on the cross, is actually used to describe his ministry to us today in the church by, again, the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Again and again and again, the psalmist's experiences and words are in or coming out of Jesus' mouth and life. We could look at so many other examples, but just turn your attention back to that early Calvin quote we said. The psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. So somebody read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14, 17, and 18 that should be in your notes there for me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Okay, so who is the book of Hebrews speaking about? Jesus. That's right. You can say that loud. That's okay. That's the Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. Absolutely. And yet... All right, last question. We did five. You ready for number six? Can you feel the excitement? (laughs) How do we read the Psalms as Christians? Okay, how do we read the Psalms as Christians? Four broad lessons I think we can take away from about how we are to read the Psalms as a Christian. And remember, this is for the purpose of teaching others. Okay, I'm taking this and teaching my children how are we to read the Psalms or those who may be new in the faith and they come to Psalms and are like, what do we do with these things? We're teaching them. Number one, we read them with sensitivity to the Psalm type, original Old Testament meaning, and its location in the canon. We read them with sensitivity to the Psalm type, its original Old Testament meaning, and its location in the canon. 
So something that we would call an explicitly messianic psalm, like Psalm 2, about the Messiah, that's going to be read differently than a psalm of lament, like Psalm 3, right? Or confession, like Psalm 51. Goldsworthy says, uh, in the process of exegesis, we will seek to understand the unique features of the individual psalms and their significance and their canonical and historical context. Now it comes very important that we look at those features, right? Number two, we read them selectively as the songs of the perfect God-fearing man, the Messiah. Remember how I said the book of Psalms is one way God's given us to talk to him in a way that honors him while never minimalizing the trials that we walk through day by day? Well, when God the Son became man and put on flesh, he entered into the realm of our temptations, trials, and miseries. Christ was, according to Hebrews, in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And finally, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. In the Psalms, Drew says, we must listen for the voice of the Messiah, which will open up new depths of understanding for us. Often, we can work so hard at protecting his divinity, we distance ourselves from his humanity. Remember, they are in sync perfectly. Drew writes, when, when we turn to the words of the Psalter and read them as Christ's very words, his humanity suddenly comes to life for us. We understand more fully what it means that our Lord submitted himself to the yoke of our flesh in order to redeem us. Read the words of Psalm 84, 1 through 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. And then picture Jesus at age 12, sitting with the rabbis in his father's house. Hear the boy's quiet words of rebuke to his frantic parents. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And then wonder with fresh insight of the words of Psalm 27, 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, that is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Jesus understands human suffering. That's one of the things we see here. All throughout the scriptures is laid out for us. Jesus understands human suffering. We also know that Jesus knew the wounds of betrayal and desertion. Jesus knew the wounds of betrayal and desertion. Psalm 38, 11. My loved one and my friends stand aloof from my plague and my relatives stand afar off. Jesus experienced that. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Sound familiar? Jesus not only knew the wounds of betrayal and desertion, Jesus knew the fear and loneliness that drives us in desperation to God for help. Jesus knew the fear and loneliness that drives us in desperation to God for help. Psalm 25, 1 and 2. Someone want to read that for us? I will consider my enemies, for they are many. They hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Jesus knew in the face of great suffering the temptation to doubt God's love. Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning, O oh my God. I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season am not silent. Not only that, Jesus knew physical suffering and death, didn't he? Psalm 22, which is, by the way, one of the most fascinating psalms. This is about the crucifixion written way before the crucifixion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's herb. 
and my tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. They pierced my hands and my feet. Remember, who was Jesus? It's the second Adam, right? He's the true son of God that Adam was not. According to Romans 5, he's the new federal head for all who would be sons of God. He's the true Israel. The one who could resist temptation for 40 days in the wilderness. Pointing back to Israel's failure and their 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus in his birth, his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection redoes redemptive history. He does it all over again. So who is this paradigmatic righteous man in Psalm 1? Is it really David? It can only be Christ. Or at least Christ fulfills it. Just like he fulfilled the law by keeping the law in its entirety. He's the ideal of righteousness in every way throughout the Psalms and throughout the Bible. So in the Psalms, he is both the Davidic, Messianic figure taking dominion over the earth, but he's also the perfect people of God, God's son, Israel. In the Psalms, we get him as both king and servant, and that should be really a tremendous source of comfort for all of us, right? To know he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. So we can put our trust in him. Listen to Drew one more time. We can derive immense comfort from reading the Psalms as the word of our mediator. Read this way, read this way, excuse me, they remind us that there exists a man who lived for us the life that we should live but fail to do so. There lives a man who loved to be continually in the courts of the Lord, unlike me. There lives a man who knows the full range of human sufferings better than I do. There lives a man whose sufferings were entirely undeserved, unlike man, unlike mine. There lives a man who could say, I wash my hands in innocence, and I go about thy altar. O Lord, singing a song of thanksgiving. A man with clean hands and a pure heart. A man who could truly protest his full righteousness and innocence. That man was not David. In fact, Psalm 32 and 51 make this plain. And it is certainly not I. It is my great Redeemer, the man Jesus, the God-man Jesus, who not only died in my place, but also lived in my place. So the next time you read, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, Psalm 122.1, and are tempted to feel horribly guilty because you'd rather be playing golf than worshiping God. Remember that these are first and foremost the words of the one true worshiper who fulfilled all righteousness on your behalf. More likely than not, when you perceive the matter this way, you'll want to put your bags aside and go with thanks to praise the one who has so fully saved you. All right. Last thing, just last two things, very quickly. We read them for ourselves through the mediator. So as Christians, we know that the only way we can approach the throne of God, uh, holy God, through Christ, is through Christ our mediator. Couldn't have messed that sentence up anymore if I tried. And in him, we can approach with confidence. In other words, as you read the Psalms, keep Christ mentally, continually at your side, like a trailblazer who is now leading you down the trail that he blazed. Goldworthy says... We should not be seduced into thinking that the Psalms can speak from and of themselves to us. If they speak to us of God, they must speak to us of the God who has finally revealed himself in Jesus Christ. They speak to us of sinners. They speak to us of those who are outside of Christ. They speak of the judgment of God. They speak to us of the curse of the law that Christ suffered for his people on the cross. If they speak to us of the faithful, the godly, or the righteous, they speak to us first of Christ and only then of those who are redeemed in Christ. Mm. Goldworthy even sums up another theologian, Bruce Waltke, by saying, Waltke concludes that the Psalms 
now stand as the prayers of Jesus Christ, who as the corporate head of the church represents all believers in their own prayers. It's because we are in Christ that we can appropriate these prayers as our own. Finally, we read them selectively as a glimpse into the relationship between the Father and Son. Um, just keep those verses. Hopefully you have them there in your notes. Um, Psalm 18 in particular. Read Psalm 18 and just see if you cannot hear a father and son as they interact with one another. Uh, Drew says, at the most profound theological level, worship is a spectator sport. We gather to watch the father vindicate his son in the preaching of the gospel, to watch the son give thanks to his father in the praises of our lips, for the spirit Christ dwells us, and that spirit lives to extol the father and the son. I would say it's not just a spectator sport, but I get his point. So our response is to do that. We use the Psalms as God's perfect gift to gain access to the marvelous theater of worship, which brings us back to the original point. If you're struggling with the means and understanding of worship, if your prayer life of singing songs, you wonder why is it that we sing so often in church? What's the point of that? And friends, read the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. They ignite our heart to praise Unlike anything else. All right. 731. So close. Any questions? Helpful? You going to take this sheet home and then just like put it with the rest of them in some folder or binder somewhere? You're going to have them accessible for the time when you come up with your active Bible reading plans to the book of Psalms. I wonder if this one's a psalm of lament or a psalm of thanksgiving. That's an imprecatory psalm. Oh my goodness, what in the world is this? All right. All right. Any questions or comments or anything you missed in the notes, you can see us afterwards. Next week, we've got Proverbs. And then I give Justin Ecclesiastes uh, and Psalms. And Psalms. Yeah. So, he loved me. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for the gift of your word. And thank you for the psalms. So we pray that we would... Um, Lord, see the incredible value that this has in our day-to-day -day life as we yearn to study your word more fully and more deeply and be encouraged to do so, and ever reminding us of our mission to make disciples to all the nations. Father, there will come a time in our life as we dig deep in your word where we will need to wrestle with these very things. So help us, Father, continue to see that you're equipping us to do so. Lord, thank you for this material, and I thank you for uh, the time you've allowed for us to spend in it together as a church family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Thank you, guys.